Hey, Dave, how you doing? Hey, man, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you to our listeners out there to uh, joining us for our third episode of Quarantine Today. Uh, we've got a few special things lined up for you that Dave will talk about a bit more. But overall, we're going to have a light segment, a heavy segment, and a light segment as usual. Dave, you want to take it away? Absolutely, yes. So we are very excited to have our first guest of the podcast, Franz Ocilia. He's one of my best friends. He is also a junior at John Hopkins and... We have been members of the Model United Nations team together for the last couple of years, so we're going to start off with some fun Model UN stories, and then we're going to go into his topic of interest, which is what he perceives to be the lack of intellectual thought and deterioration of serious think tanks today in the modern GOP. And then we'll get into more of the um, additional uh, current events and lighter stuff that Nick was talking about a second ago. Yep, and we just want to thank our viewers out there. We've had 70 listeners to our first two podcast episodes thank you so much again you can find us on spotify apple podcasts anchor and we will be fixing google podcasts soon so you can listen to us on that as well and without further ado dave take it away Franz and i have known each other through the model un team for the past three years and we actually met each other even before this at an orientation event called sohop and Franz, do you want to introduce yourself briefly for the listeners Absolutely. Well, as you said, Dave, I'm, I'm a junior studying international studies and economics at Johns Hopkins as well. Uh, so we met at SOHOP, which it actually preceded uh, orientation. I believe it was like the April of the, of the year that we got into the school. And then we just, uh, like by coincidence, we just managed to get into the same MLUN team. And we've had a really good friendship. And I can honestly say that we've, you're one of my best friends in the university. So oh. I appreciate it. Um, being in the podcast today. Thanks, man. Definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I guess some funny, I guess two quick funny stories um, with Franz from the Model UN team. Um, and I guess after that, we can kind of get into it. But the first one is involving freshman Franz, freshman year Franz. Um, I'll show you, I'm sure you'll remember this. Um, we, our Model UN team, we have a lot of socials, like just kind of party events where the members bond and um, get together and have fun. And freshman Franz was a very exciting fellow. Like every time we would be at these parties, what happened is that at the end of the night, Franz would always disappear off somewhere when we'd never, I never quite know where he went. So I would be calling him, like looking on like the snap map, like Franz, where are you? Where are you? And like, he'd always, he'd always end up back in his apartment somewhat, somehow or some way, but he was very, very mobile. And even one time, like you, you were trying to get out of the, um, the window, right? Like you were trying to climb out the window. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, my that was not my proudest moment. Um, freshman <laughs> France was um, what happens when you take a high schooler that has that didn't usually party in here in high school, and then you expose him to like everything that college has to offer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so the way I, d I would describe it is that um, yeah, there, there usually came a point during the night night where I I guess my subconscious would say, "All right, let's go home." Yeah. And that that would often that would often not include telling my friends that I'm going home. So <laughs> so what that means is waking up the next morning uh, with five to ten texts from Dave or Zach or other people in Hopmong telling me where I went. <laughs> yeah, no, freshman Franz was legendary. And another funny story. This is also from our freshman year. We were at a conference in Boston, HN Mun, and. We were our apart or our hotel room was like on the seventeenth floor or one of the very high up floors in this hotel. And the one thing in Mali UN conference is that always the elevators are packed with people. So <laughs> what we ended up doing this one day, like there were no elevators were available. So what we finally did is we ran all the way up 
walked 17 floors. I not just walked. We ran legit. Booked we ran <laughs> in our Western business attire and made it and made it to the hotel room, which was pretty crazy and unforgettable experience. You know, you know, I think that that was just like the, the right exercise that we needed for a <laughs> for four days of eating like like crap. <laughs> so so we, yeah. we got it at the beginning we got it in the first day which kind of uh, Dave which kind of actually reminds me were you did you ever hear about what happened um, oh no you were there uh, when in, at Harvard remember when I got lost at Harvard in one of the floors because I was talking to my girlfriend oh wait a minute yes this was another freshman Franz disappearance yes uh, it, it, so what happened was that we were at the Saturday Delgatans, which for those of you who don't know what it is, is basically every Saturday after the Molly UN conference ends, uh, you know, you have a big dance party with every school that went to the conference. Yeah. So while that was going on, um, I decided to call my girlfriend. And since like the lobby was too crowded, I decided to go to, I think, either the fourth or the fifth floor just to talk. Yeah. But little did I know that we ended up talking for like two hours. Oh, yeah. And and the only reason that I found out that people were missing me is because uh, one of the other delegates that came to the conference with us texted my girlfriend saying if she was talking to me or no saying whether she knew where I was, and then I realized that that I really needed to go back, or else <laughs> our head delegate was gonna yell at us. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. It sounds it sounds like to me uh, we don't have a model UN team, but it sounds like model UN consists of a lot of. Uh, running, a lot of dancing, a lot of good times, apparently. And, you know, I, I wish I had a model UN team. Wow. Okay. No, highly, rec- <laughs> highly recommend it. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I, I mean, I would, I would create one if I was you. <laughs> yeah, Nick, you should create this for mine. Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, Just out of curiosity, what countries did you guys represent? Oh, is that HN Mun? Hmm. At HN Mun? I was in crisis, I think. I th- yeah, crisis committee is like you don't necessarily. Sometimes you have a character. It's not always a country, but that year I think I was representing India in a. Um, I think it was in a general assembly body. Yeah. I think it was a in crisis. I think it was a the chief of the army of the Vene- of the Venetian army uh, in the 1600s when they were fighting the Ottomans. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Wow. So very niche topics. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's it's crazy that you guys have a crisis uh, committee on the Model UN team, and that's something that you guys, like, worry about. And, I mean, now, today, and now, we have that problem right now. Quarantine today, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. I guess. Oh, sorry, Nick. Go ahead. I was just, just going to say it's, it's really wild. And um, good for you guys. You have some exposure as to what the government would do in this. But, um, Dave, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, sorry. Um, yeah, so I was just going to say, Franz, not only have we had uh, so many fun times together over the years, he's also one of the, truly one of the smartest people that I know. He's pursuing his master's and accelerated five years master's program at the Johns Hopkins School of Interna- Advanced International Studies, or SICE, one of the best grad schools for IR in the world. And given that, I guess, Franz, do you want to kind of introduce what you were, uh, wanted to talk about today on the pod? Right, right. So for me, um, one of the things that has stooped me for, I don't know, I guess it's President Trump's election in 2016, is that um, the Republican Party has completely just given up on its intellectual wing. Mm. Like, I remember that when I was first getting into politics, I used to really admire admire people like Paul Ryan, for example. Because Paul Ryan was a policy guy, right? He mm. understood that to, to, to counter the Democrats' messaging, 
the Republican Party needed to have its own messaging and its own policies, backed by you know reputable think tanks and good economists mm. and uh, good logic as well. And but then, like you know, with the rise of the Tea Party and then you know the the, t- the takeover of the Republican Party by President Trump, um, that just kind of went out the window. And and now I'm I'm looking at at the situation policy-wise, and I see that the Republicans have no healthcare plan. They have no response to COVID-19. They have no, they have no immigration plan, except for, you know, the, the rhetoric of Trump pieces. Mm. And it's just really disheartening because right now I feel like the, at least, at least, at least they still have some sort of foreign policy uh, knowledge, but, but I mean, that's, that's now cracking under the pressure of Trump as well. So, so it's been really disheartening as someone who grew up um, admiring the Paul Ryan and and the 2012 autopsy that they made in after the after their loss yeah. against Barack Obama. Yeah, I would say Franz is definitely one of the more conservative people on our campus. Hopkins is generally a very liberal campus, but I guess diving in a little bit, why why do you think this is? Do you think that the primary cause of this deterioration has been the influence of Trump? Do you think there are external factors? Like, what is your gut take on that? Um, my gut take is that it happened way before Trump. I think that the 2010 Tea Party takeover fundamentally changed the relationship between the Republican Party and its constituencies, especially mm-hmm. because so many, um, I guess, Tea Partiers, I guess, took co- started taking over uh, reputable think tanks of the past, think tanks that had been there since the times of Reagan, right? For example, mm-hmm. I know that the Heritage Foundation was hugely, hugely respected in Washington until um, former Senator DeMitt took over uh, as executive director and basically turned it into a joke. It turned it into a, into, into a, into a, another arm of Heritage Action, which is essentially a, a super PAC. And so, so I think it has to do more with the, with the slow t- uh, takeover of the Republican Party by, by more reactionary forces, such as the Tea Party. And then, of course, it culminated and it got completely destroyed by President Trump's election. And now the Republican Party is just a party of rhetoric, in my opinion, which I think is a mistake because I think that it stands for some really good principles, but we just have to find a way to, to package them together and, and be able to talk about it. Franz, that, that brings up some good points. I actually, I have a question for you because it seems like uh, the 2008 election when we looked at Barack Obama versus John McCain, we saw the older Republican ideals that you're talking about and John McCain. Is that correct? Right. And then as we progressed further, we saw, um, I guess, the Donald Trump election of 2016 when him and Hillary Clinton went against each other and Donald Trump won. Um, do you see the resurgence of that old Republican uh, ideal coming back from the John McCain sort of era, pre-Donald Trump era, is that coming back anytime soon? Or do you, do you see in the foreseeable future just Donald Trump sort of Republicanism continuing on? I, I think that it is very, very highly dependent on whether or not President, President Trump loses re-election in 2020 or this year. Um, because I would, I would hope. I mean, if the if the Republican Party was a rational party, I would hope that if they if they get beaten in twenty twenty, um, they will reassess their whole party and their whole uh, campaign apparatus as well. 
So, but, but, but I mean, but if Trump is, is re-elected president, which, I mean, currently betting odds say that it could be, I think it's between 45 and 50% chance of him being re-elected president, then I think that the takeover might be permanent. And mm -hmm. I don't know what direction that, that might take the Republican Party. Yikes. Yeah, that that is a that would be a very scary outcome indeed. And um, for a lot of people and and for a lot of reasons. But one thing actually that this makes me think of is that I believe after the 2012 election, when um, Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney, someone, a senior strategist within the Republican Party, created a new um, strategic guideline that was going to emphasize more reaching out to minority groups and voters of color trying to um, take away some of the hardline um, social, socially conservative positions of the Republican Party. And that approach ultimately lost out. Is, is, this, is this true? Am I remembering this correctly? And if so, why do you think that that um, policy, which was, I guess, created after the Tea Party resurgence, why did that falter to the background so quickly? You know, I, I believe that those ideas weren't as unpopular as people think it is. And people th think they, it is now. Because Trump ended up winning the Republican primary by, with maybe 40% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the, that the reason that ultimately Trump got nominated as, as a Republican nominee was because Ted Cruz, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, they just couldn't do what, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Klobuchar and, and others did for Biden. They, just, they, they, they were more stubborn. They stayed in the race when they probably shouldn't have. And I think that divided the moderate vote way too much. But I mean, just look, just, just look at, at the Republican field. Like in the, with the top four contenders in 2016 primary, two of them were Latino. Marco Rubio was uh, profiled in Times Magazine as, as, the, as, as the next great Republican or something like that. And his story, his personal story of how he, his parents were immigrants, he... He didn't have a lot of money when he was growing up. Nevertheless, he went to college, he went to law school. He became, I think, the Speaker of the House of, of, the, Flor of the Florida General Assembly. And then he won an unexpected primary against a, a former go the governor of, of, of Florida in the Republican primary. I mean, his story was exactly what the Republicans have been preaching, you know, that the type of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, and, and reach your potentials. But, you know, since... Todd Cruz was there since John Kasich was there. Uh, he just got crowded out. I mean, not not to mention the Chris Christie the, the debate. Oh, I remember the fiasco with Chris Christie. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. So I, I Franz, I had a, one more question for you. Um. As you were saying, the Republican Party now is taking a different path. It's uh, changing from where it had been in the John McCain era. Um. Do you think, because it seems to me like it's already been happening, but do you think the Democratic Party might also change a bit in the future to match up with that drastic Republican change? And if so, do you think a new political party might emerge as like a bigger moderate party that aligns more Americans than either of these parties? Um, that's a great question. I tend to sh to say short any attempt by people to convince you that there's going to be a third party. Because I think that the electoral process in the US, the first past the post and the electoral college makes it almost impossible. Also, you need the funding. At the end of the day in the US, party, the party mechanisms and the party um, 
is extremely important to run in an election unless you have or unless you're a millionaire or a billionaire's funding you know several campaigns yeah um what i will say is that i certainly don't expect what happened to the republican party to happen to the democrat to the democrat party to the democratic party because whereas trump supporters are the base of the republican party uh, progressives are not the base of the democrat party the base of the democratic party is are African-Americans who continue to be uh, more moderate and more socially conservative than, than um, the white activist class in the, in the, in the Democratic Party. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know Franz and I have had a lot of conversations about the primary process and whether or not it is viable, whether or not we think it would be a good idea for the political elites, the so-called elites of the party to regain some control in order to moderate some of the candidates. That would especially be applicable to the case of Trump that we've been talking right. about. And, and Dave, do you remember when when we would spend uh, two hour, almost two hours on the bus to, to Washington, D.C. for our science class discussing this? Oh, yes. Yes, we would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Franza, we took this great class called the Kissinger Seminar, where it was half held in Baltimore, half held in DC and the university provided the bus for us. And we'd have a lot of very great and engaging uh, political conversations going back and forth down the, um, the Baltimore, Washington, I guess, freeway or parkway. Um, freeway, I believe. Yeah. And honestly, David, uh, I don't know when Zach is going to be on, on your podcast. I don't know if he, if he will, but if, if he is, you, you should definitely ask him to get more in depth about the whole 5g thing, because I know that he oh, loves oh. that. And there's been a lot of developments with that recently. Definitely. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. We should definitely try to talk about that. Franz, our other fr- good friend, Zach, um, myself and two other people, we all worked on this m- massive paper about 5G technology and the rise of Huawei, which is a um, a Chinese telecommunications company. And we our professors really liked the paper and to such an extent that they offered us the invitation to meet Henry Kissinger. But then, of course, remember, I forget what it was, but remember, he, he backed out for some reason. I forget His what it was. schedule didn't line up, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly. I will say that um, the first international relations book that I ever read was Henry Kissinger's Diplomacy. And I read it my freshman year of high school. And to this day, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Because he's an excellent writer, writer regardless of his international reputation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I guess, um, barring any final, th- Franz, do you have anything you want to, um, anything you want to promote or anything you want to say before we uh, sign off for now? Um, oh well, I guess the only thing is just guys, remember to, to thank our healthcare service workers in during these times. And yeah. other than that, uh, just very grateful to you and Nick for having me today, and I hope that you guys are staying healthy. Yeah. Yeah. We man. loved. You, Franz, thank you so much for coming on and being our first guest. All right, guys. Yeah, Franz. Thank you. Stay well. Bye. Yeah, we will return with a heavier segment. Thank you again to Franz Asilia. Um, Stay safe and stay healthy, Franz. Thank you. You too, guys. Thanks. Hello again, Dave. Hello, hello. Um, Again, thank you to uh, Franz Asilia for coming on. That was a great segment that he had, and um, great topic that he was talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, I think, a pretty fantastic way to kick off our first set of guests. Mm-hmm. Um, so without further ado, for our listeners out there, we'd just like to jump into the current events that are happening right now. Um, 
As Franz was mentioning, Henry Kissinger was a former United States Secretary of State. Um, he is still alive today, but he has some thoughts on the coronavirus and how it could impact the future of the nation as well as the economy. He believes that um, the last time he saw a pandemic or a, a world situation emergency like this was like during World War II, except the difference was during World War II, countries had their doors open to each other. They were welcoming. They were working together, trying to figure it out. And this pandemic and this emergency that we're facing right now, um, there is only each nation defending themselves. So you'll find America not really working closely with other countries because that could increase the spread of the uh, pandemic. Dave, is there anything you want to add about Henry Kissinger or his take on this? Yeah, so I guess um, I haven't gotten a chance to see that specific quote, but going off of what you said, I would definitely agree with the sentiment that the U.S. has greatly bungled the opportunity to work with our foreign allies on creating a unified response to this. You've seen Mike Pompeo, I think, has been our current Secretary of State, has been woefully absent from the world stage. Usually this would be the time when an American diplomat would be bringing together our allies to coordinate a world response to a pandemic such as this, because due to the nature of globalization, these pandemics can probably spread at a rate easier than before. Based off that quote, I would push back on one thing. I know Kissinger said that countries worked very well together during World War II. And I guess if you're looking at the allied powers, I would agree very much that there was great coordination between the U.S. and the U.K., the Free French, and I guess to some extent the Soviet Union. But uh, Dave, real quick, I just wanted to revise something I said. Yeah, please. Um, that, that wasn't exactly a quote. I was just kind of paraphrasing what he said. But um, he said that before, during World War II, they were more open to working towards each other, something along those lines. And he, he kind of implied that now countries are not focused on working with each other to deliver a massive global scale solution, rather an individualized nation per nation solution to the problem that we're seeing today. And he's saying that um, the impact that this will have on future generations may be um, gigantic, enormous. Um, so continue your thought. Gotcha. But yes, yeah, so I would I would say that the United States has really missed an opportunity to work with in concert with our allies. And I think it's a sad state of affairs when the U.S. is retreating from its role as a leader in the world stage in response to crises. And you see China stepping into this void. You see you've seen the I guess it's arguable that China's response has been effective as the media says it is because of the underreporting of statistics, but the very fact that China is offering personal protective equipment, I, I believe even to New York is I think an apt indicator of the fact that the U S is retreating from the world stage under the Trump era and that China is happy to fill the void. Mm -hmm. And other countries that are also going to take a stance on this. Absolutely. Um, Another event that we'd want to talk about currently that's happening is Dr. Fauci and the Surgeon General um, Jerome Adams warned that this coming week, this next seven to eight days, should be, if social distancing practices are in place and are being enforced, should be the peak of the virus in terms of death tolls. Um, as unfortunate as that may be, that is probably better than it coming later on because we're already seeing a large enough death toll and having it. Uh, during this time would ensure that um, we can avoid having a lot more deaths uh, if social distancing practices are enforced. That being said, if these practices aren't being enforced, 
we could see that number change and jump up again if there's another outbreak. But as of now, this coming week, there should be the Surgeon General kind of compared it to our 9-11 slash Pearl Harbor week. And we should be expecting something along those ranges of uh, the magnitude of the impact of the deaths and how big this will be during this week. Yeah, I would say this is really an unprecedented moment in terms of the closest thing that compares with the pandemic is over 100 years ago, the Spanish flu of 1918. And while while I think it is appropriate to compare the scale of this event to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, I think that perhaps even underscores the degree of death that we're seeing. I know 10,000 people have already died. Um, projections have said that it could go up to 100 to 200,000 people. And just in general, I think we should be looking at this response, being very critical of what the U.S. is doing in comparison to getting testing out uh, when you, in comparison to other countries like Germany and South Korea that have been more effective. And you look at the lack of foresight that our government had in um, perhaps invoking the Defense Production Act in January when we first knew about this to get respirators out ahead of time and just kind of thinking very critically about that. But I would agree that this is a, hopefully, as you said, that this is the peak of it. And if we keep adhering to social distancing, then the virus will slowly start to fade a little bit more into the background. That's right. And um, as we've seen uh, through statistics, it's been about 10,000 deaths so far because of coronavirus. It's already exceeded the death count from uh, Pearl Harbor or 9-11. So it is, um, he was just, you know, comparing it to those events, but um, this this pandemic is definitely taking a bigger toll on us now compared to the Spanish flu of 1918 because the Spanish flu um, was during a different time when technology was newer. Uh, it was emerging and we weren't as used to mass teleportation, mass, or, sorry, not teleportation. Mass, <laughs> I wish teleportation. <laughs> I wish to, but mass transportation of people. And now that we've been used to it for about 100 years uh, it is definitely strange to see this outbreak con- continue and not have the government and other entities enforce good measures to prevent the spread, as we, we'd hope to have seen by now. But at this point, we, we're seeing that the government is as adequately prepared for this as it was 100 years ago. Yes, absolutely. And another interesting um, development in current events that Nick and I were talking about a bit right before we came on the air is that there is now news that the prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, is in intensive care due to his contracting of the coronavirus. Obviously, we send best wishes and hope that he has a speedy recovery. One very interesting, um, one I'd say cruel and sad irony of this whole situation is that Boris Johnson's initial position for Britain on the coronavirus was to have the idea of herd immunity, which would mean that everyone in the country would contract the virus. And um, by recovering, I guess with everyone recovering in due time, this would lead to enough of the population being immune that it wouldn't cause a significant disruption. But um, as our scientists have told us, this would have gone completely against the notion of flattening the curve and not overwhelming our healthcare system. I know Britain's NHS, National Health Service, has had a lot of the same issues that the United States has had, even even though the Johnson government abandoned this position of herd immunity. And again, I know a couple of days ago, I believe Prince Charles of the UK was also diagnosed with... That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So best wishes to both of them. And uh, hopefully 
we don't see them or any other world leaders contract the virus, but it's perhaps an inevitability. Yeah, and it's just it's really going to be a sight to see how the country recovers from this because not only has he been infected, but he is in the 50s age range. So, um, you know, it, it's definitely he's definitely someone that's not um, going to stay away from the opportunity. The, the, possibility that he might pass away because of this virus because he's in his 50s and if he does unfortunately pass away because of this i'm curious to see how the uk and other government entities would respond to that happening and just what steps they'd take to uh, further curtail and get rid of this virus because i mean right now it's a little it's a lot too late and we're just seeing what's happening because of that and hopefully Hopefully Boris Johnson does get out of that safely and healthily. I know his wife or sorry, his girlfriend who's pregnant with his child uh, also contracted the uh, coronavirus. And I'm just hopeful that all of them are going to be safe and healthy as well as the entire UK and the United States and every other person in the world. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that would be um, in the very unfortunate situation if something were to happen to Boris Johnson or even if he was to become incapacitated or he could no longer be prime minister for a period. Um, that would be fascinating to see the ramifications of that for Brexit because he is the leader of the Tories, the Conservative Party, and he is a very pro-Brexit politician. Um, the Labour Party, which has traditionally been one of the, um, to a certain extent, um, large portions of the Labour Party opposed Brexit and they had a deeply unpopular leader named Jeremy Corbyn. However, I believe yesterday he was replaced by a new leader and just having to navigate the discussion of changes to the Brexit plan for the UK with all of the other craziness that's happening with the coronavirus is, would really be a daunting prospect. I mean, yeah, as, 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 as Franz really kind of introduced to us, um, Kissinger and other government leaders of the older Republican Party, they've kind of been criticizing how the Republican Party now has been taking care of this. And I guess the overall administration in different governments is taking care of this. This could play out, adding on to your point, Dave, this could play out into the economies of different governments around the world after this entire thing is over. I know OPEC is going through some struggles and that's clearly impacting oil prices and the economy. And I can only imagine what this is, this is going to do for the future of Brexit and just the future of the economic systems across different nations. Cause yeah. I don't know how long it's going to take for them to recover after this. Yeah. I totally, totally agree with that. Uh, I guess, Nick, is there anything else you want to hit with current events before we transition to some slightly lighter stuff? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think we've hit it all. I wish we had less things to go over in current events, but this is the harsh reality of the time and the world we're living in right now. But yeah, let's let's get on to some lighter stuff, Dave, if you want to take it away. Yeah, yeah. So I guess wrapping up our final discussion of Tiger King, um, Nick, you said you've watched through episode three, but you just don't want to, you couldn't continue with it. It didn't capture your attention enough. Yeah, um, so... Uh, to all of the fans out there for, of Tiger King, I thought it was a very interesting story. I thought it was a very interesting documentary, my bad. But um, after a while, I kind of got bored of it because there were so many things you could research and just look up on Google just about Joe Exotic and where this went that waiting for it to play out in a seven or eight episode series, mini series, just wasn't worth the time for me. And I was more interested in like other tv shows or movies that were out and it's like it's funny maybe i'm more um i'm more easily entertained by like 
cheap entertainment, but I loved Tiger King. Um, and considering now that Nick is not going to um, see the end of it, and, and I have and I want to talk about it, I'm going to give a spoiler alert right now because I'm about to spoil the rest of the series. So please log off if you or skip to a later segment of the pod. Okay, that's long enough. So on Tiger King, I think there are so many just fucking like insane characters in the show. Like you have like Bhagavan Doc Antle, like this crazy rancher, I guess, in South Carolina who runs this zoo and also has this strange like harem of women. And then, yeah. have, and then like you have um, Joe Exotic, who is this um, gun touting, um, gay, libertarian, former pro- political candidate. And really the thing that's crazy is that these people, the tigers, as crazy as they are, are almost a subplot to these strange people and all of their weird interpersonal rivalries um having watched the show i definitely believe that carol baskin killed her husband um joe lewis like the evidence seems to be pretty overwhelming and if you read um nick i'm not sure if i told you about this but carol baskin actually put something on her website for big cat rescue where she's kind of denouncing what she says are the lies put in tiger king did i tell you about this i you did not no but it's pretty ridiculous um I should pull it up, but like really one of the things she says is she's debunking a theory. It's really long and obnoxious. And if you all want some entertainment, I guess you should go read it. The one thing where she's trying to debunk the fact that she murdered or the allegation that she murdered her husband is that she says the Netflix documentary claims that I used a meat grinder to um, cut up the body of my husband. And that's ridiculous. The meat grinder that I had on my property is a kitchen size meat grinder. And the one that Netflix shows is huge. And this is a total exaggeration for television. And just reading this and reading this hysterical statement, I was like, there is no way someone who is innocent would – or just in my opinion, I don't think – she didn't sound like someone who is innocent from all of the hysterical denunciations of her crime, her alleged it, crime. Yeah. I would 100% agree with you just from watching those three episodes. She seemed totally emotionally calm when, yep. whenever she was asked about her husband's death. She was like, you know, yeah, he just said – he was going to leave and to prepare the car for him. And then, you know, he wasn't there. He, something had happened. And she didn't seem at all traumatized by this. I mean. Really? She really didn't. Yeah. I, you'd expect someone who's innocent to try to at least put on an act at the very minimum. But I, I don't know how I feel about her just being completely solid and just emotionless just going through this. I, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with what you said, that she's, she seems shockingly emotionless. And even if you look at her eyes, like her eyes seem to have this kind of cold, cool um, contentment, I guess, with the situation. And I would say her husband is about Howard Baskin, um, the man who in a lot of the pictures online is seen in the wedding photo where he's on a leash being held by Carol Baskin, which is a whole other ridiculous thing. But he seems like just such a, he seems like a skeevy guy. I don't know why. He just seems like such a skeevy guy. The fact that he got with her, I think, months after Joe Lewis disappeared. And I just, I'd like to know more about him. Like, I don't, I don't want to know too much more about these people because I already feel like I need to, like, take a shower because I feel so dirty having encountered all these individuals. But I'd be curious to know what his deal is and how he came to meet Carol Baskin. Truly, truly. It, it's such a weird just chemistry we see between characters on this show and I guess played out in real life. I'm, I'm, I really didn't know about this part of America and this yep. part of the world. So I, I really had my eyes opened up. I don't know for the better, but I definitely learned a little bit about the exotic animal trade, but more about 
um, the different chemistry levels between different people and uh, Bhagavan, Dog Antles, um, Har- Haram or Harim. Har- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Haram, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, uh, Joe Exotic and his husband and other lovers he's had. Or just Oral, you know, Carol Baskin. Husband. Yeah. Yeah. Or Carol Baskin and just her relationships and, you know, the almost infinite amount of wealth she's poured into these tigers. Uh, it's just, it's weird. Yeah. It's totally weird. Yeah. So I guess, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the movie Onward, which you recommended people watch a couple episodes ago? Yes. Yes, I would. Um, you know, Onward, as you all may have seen by now, because it's on Disney Plus as of this past Friday, has Chris Pratt and Tom Holland in it. It also has um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think. Um, And this story really kind of is about a kid who was born into this life without knowing or meeting his dad ever. His dad passed away before he was born. And he goes on a quest to pretty much try to meet his dad. Now, I won't spoil this for you entirely or whatever. I do want you to be able to watch it still. But I thought it was a very, it's a Pixar movie. So I thought it was great at delivering the emotional aspects of family. And, you know, those people you're always searching for may just be right next to you. And you need to appreciate the people who've stuck with you through everything, not just the people you're trying to reach for emotionally. Wow. That's so wholesome. You just made me want to see it. Sounds like that would like such, such a heartwarming story. Um, I think I haven't, I haven't seen that yet, obviously, but um, I think the last two Pixar movies I saw were inside out and Coco and both mm-hmm. of those, both of those movies were real tear jerkers. Um, they warmed my icy heart, like seeing all these nice characters. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I feel like Pixar had a couple down years after the creation of, Toy Story 3, I think in like 2010, but they seem to have really had a nice resurgence the last couple of years. Yeah, I, you know, it's so, it's so fascinating to me to watch Pixar come up with these new ideas and, you know, movies like Ratatouille, Wally, Great where classic. I don't, yeah, they're classics and I don't even know how they'd come up with ideas like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really, these, some of these things are just so out of the box, I guess, and revolutionary. Like like you said, Ratatouille is just a movie about a rat that learns how to cook. While mm-hmm. the, one of the most underrated movies, even Up, I would say. Up is another one. If you really want to cry, watch the first couple minutes of Up and the opening scene with, um, I think, the, what's the, name, the main character's name? Is it Fred? I don't know. I just remember Kevin. I remember Russell. Yeah. I don't really remember hearing that guy's name much. The, whoever the old <laughs> guy is, who the old guy whose house has the balloons, him, him and his wife, the opening scene. I know his wife's name is Ellie. It's one of the saddest scenes you'll ever see in a movie so if you're trying to have some sad boy hours tonight then definitely check out the opening um, couple minutes of up agreed yeah all right yeah so i think um that just about covers everything i wanted to talk about nick is there anything else you want to get out there uh you know dave i just wanted to reiterate on some of the points you had made earlier um just in the intro you can Listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Anchor. We're having some trouble with uh, Google Podcasts, but we'll get that figured out soon enough. Um, Thank you again to our 70 listeners, maybe even more as of now, but uh, we really appreciate you guys listening to our podcasts. Again, this is a way for us to pass the time during quarantine and a way for us to try to give you the news and how college students are being affected by this from a college perspective and not a journalist or a reporter's perspective. Um, Dave, you want to close out the segment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So everyone just stay well, have a nice week and we will be back talking to you again on probably Saturday night. Yep. Thank you very much and enjoy your week. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Have a good week.